0: Take up the white man's burden, the savage wars of peace. Feel full the mouth of famine and if the sickness cease. And when your goal is nearest, the end for others sought, watch
1: sloth and Ethan folly bring all your hopes to naught. Very well, Brunita. Um, so, Bruna has just read an excerpt from the poem The White Man's Burden by Rudyard Kipling. Um, so one who wrote this in 1899, uh, which were years of major imperialism and colonization. So, I guess this poem sort of criticizes how the white race at the time thought of itself as responsible for civilizing non white peoples and d- doing it through settler colonism, which is not right, of course. Yeah, precisely. Um, And um, we decided to start this podcast with this quotation, because although this is not the reading for uh, today, we we read actually a book also called White Man's Burden. Um, Curiously enough, they have the the same title. And uh, right, Bruna?
0: Yeah, this poem was taken as the starting point for William Estersley's book called The White Man's Burden, why the West's efforts to aid the rest have done so much ill and so little good. This is Damn. quite the lengthy <laughs> title, yes. It's yeah, very it's long. harsh, right? Yeah, but it starts already with the problematic that Israeli tries to criticize throughout the book, which is why mm-hmm. the aid systems in place, particularly from international multilateral agencies, Um, are not ultimately effective in solving the problems that are persisting Mm -hmm. and hindering progress in the developing world like poverty, hunger and infectious diseases.
1: Yeah, and as you know, I am especially passionate about this topic of today, Bruni, and um, I actually never said <laughs> about development economics when we have uh, conversations <laughs> about any, any topic, but um, I, I guess I just have a fetish for problems that, at least as of now, do not have a, mm-hmm. a clear and simple solution, but the thing is that solving social problems is such a complex task of economics and um i guess too often we focus on the immediate human needs um and we see humanitarian action but we don't focus enough on what's causing them and in this case uh the case of what this book discusses is how we can um think critically uh, about why is it that the current solution to fight poverty does not seem to be efficient enough Mm. in what comes to finance growth. And at the same time, economics is sticky, right? So in the sense that it takes time to see the outcomes in economies,
0: Yeah, and many complex phenomena might be impacting on the result of policies.
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, one thing is obviously to write up a plan in our offices. And another is what is really going to come from it on the fields.
0: Yeah, and it's not only policymakers and academics, but also the general public that gets paralyzed by the amount of information that we are given about these problems. And then it is actually harder to act on very simple things. For instance, 690 million people go to bed hungry every night. However, there's enough food to feed everyone. So what's the missing link here? Mm -hmm. By the way, these are uh, the statistics for this year by the official source of the United Nations World
1: Food Programme. This year's winner of the Nobel Peace Prize as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for their efforts in increasing the support for hunger relief up Mm -hmm. to 138 million people, which is a considerable amount. This is actually an incredible effort, but it's not enough, unfortunately, because instead of being able to er eradicate world hunger by 2030, as the World Food Programme initially expected, uh, and it Mm -hmm. was proposed on the Sustainable Development Goals for 2030, Now it's expected that uh, additionally 840 million people will be hungry in the next 10 years due to conflicts, uh, climate change and other shocks like, for instance, COVID, of course.
1: Yeah. And uh, when we see all those, uh, I mean, that statistic, for example, that you just mentioned or all the facts that the book brings about... I mean at least for me I couldn't help but thinking uh, on the comparison between countries that have done that have made that uh, jump from developing to developed economies mm. and to what extent was that helped by ad flows or internally or international help in any other manner I mean, I'm not saying that the wealthier countries, obviously they, they shouldn't stop to to try to help and uh, financing it, of course. Uh, but what's being discussed here, uh, especially in the book, is the efficacy of so far implemented projects. Mm-hmm. And why is it that we see so little innovation in what comes to development policy?
0: Yeah, devel- development policy has affected positively some countries who actually made the transition from uh, developing to developed, but there are other yeah. cases of countries that seem to be stuck.
1: Yes, and I mean, it's, it's clear that past historical events matter a lot. For instance, after World War II, some developing countries or newly decolonized countries have made that transition in terms of of growth.
0: Yeah, are you going to give some examples?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, For instance, after the Second World War, for instance, many Latin American countries have decided to stay closed to protect their domestic Mm. industries. And they adopted what we call in political economy, import substituting, industrialization. So they basically wanted to buy time for their domestic industries to grow.
0: Yeah, but they did that still with the prospect of later becoming able to compete in the international trade, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So it was about temporary temporary mm-hmm. closure. uh, to the world economy so as to grow internally so that their products and markets could develop and become strong enough to compete one day in international trade as you said uh, at some point in the future Mm -hmm. but um, timing is very important and uh, besides all this in the 60s and the 70s what was observed was that Countries like Japan and the Asian tigers, which had opted for a completely different path, which is called export-led growth, they were performing much better than Latin American countries. Meaning these Asian countries pushed their domestic producers to export and didn't wait. So they developed a lot and that worked for them.
0: Yeah, the post-World War II period was uh, definitely very messy and confusing time in world politics.
1: Yeah, indeed. But I guess it's also important to mention that in the case of the Asian region that I was just saying other countries played an important role in helping them. For instance, the US, Mm -hmm. it had a special attention to some of these countries in uh, in Asia and it actually considered preferential trade to Japan and South Korea. For example, the US imported many Japan's and South Korea's products without barriers to trade or with Mm -hmm. low, low, very low barriers and they exported technology so that that would improve their balance of trade and they would be able to grow their economies. And why? Because they also wanted to help these countries to grow um, soon enough as not to be vulnerable to a possible submersion into communism, which is quite characteristic in that area. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of it, um, neighbor China actually had a different path, right? Mm -hmm. Once again... a related question to you, Bruno. I wanted uh, <laughs> you could maybe like elucidate a bit on how how was the past in China? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, China is since two thousand and ten the second largest economy in the world. Um, but before that, it had to go through a lot of reforms and opening up from yeah. uh, its from the past century, right? So the China opening up policy was proposed at the end of the 70s only by Deng Xiaoping, which was actually inspired by the Singapore's path towards being an economic superpower. Actually, mm-hmm. I think it were uh, 20,000 Chinese that were sent to Singapore to study about their development model. Um mm-hmm. Deng Xiaoping proposed what is now known as the Four modernization species, basically a set of reforms in four sectors of agriculture, science, industry, and technology.
1: So it was basically still socialism, but with Chinese characteristics, a different type one. Yeah.
0: Yes, that's an expression that is also used today to refer to China's development exactly. model in the late 70s. Um, what it really is, is a development model that adopts elements of market economics, but at the same time maintains uh, the Chinese Communist Party commitment to communism and also their monopoly and the political power.
1: And it is so different from neighboring countries' policies like Japan and South Korea that adopted instead the East Asian model, right?
0: Well, yeah, many scholars have... Debated on the question if China's model is or isn't similar to the East Asian model, but in the end, there are two fundamentally main differences. The first one is that obviously China is much more of a command economy than the other three countries have ever been, and second, and which is almost a paradox at the same time. (laughs) China has embraced the globalization with arguably much greater enthusiasm than the other uh, others did, at least uh, mm-hmm. on the early stages.
1: Yeah, so this uh, situation you just described and also the ones I referred to, this basically shows how the internal and the external environment of a given country and its momentum in change change everything. Actually yeah,
0: yeah. all countries have different conditionalities.
1: Yeah, and um, the thing is that the literature has had such a hard time, hence, uh, to provide a clear answer on what the correct approach should be in helping out their developed countries and uh, what's how to grow their sustainable economies. And there are ones that are still in deep needs.
0: Yeah, like most of the African country is.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, actually, in White Man's Burden, the, the author of the book describes the evolution of the literature in um, development economics. And it's very interesting to see it because there is a famous theory that I ach- actually also have uh, heard in other uh, development economics books that is called The Big Push. And that theory basically reasons that foreign aid works as an exogenous push to growth. So, in theory, it would stimulate domestic resources by injecting capital from wealthier countries to poorer countries. And that theory sees basically poverty and underdevelopment as being caused primarily by lack of capital and technological backwardness. Mm. So... According to it, basically, after wealthier countries inject those poor countries with a sufficient amount of monetary aid, they would take off into well-sustained growth and basically never need foreign aid for that again, in theory. it's
0: Yeah, in theory. And that theory, um, the big push came in the 40s, uh, yeah, but
1: I yeah, think yeah.
0: it's still widely discussed today.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. As I, as I said, many development economics books refer this and then see the before and after of certain countries to receive um, after receiving um, head uh, from Western countries, for instance. And it so happens that although there are some success cases mm-hmm. um, where that monetary has helped the growth of others, there were also some cases in which it didn't. There were cases in which after getting large amounts of monetary ads, the results were even negative growth in some countries and zero growth in some others. So the solution couldn't just be about injecting money. Um, Then already in this century, there was another um, theory very much debated by uh, scholars. And I guess it's very acceptable because it is as hypothesized that uh, countries that have actually good institutions and policies will be mm. the ones that be able to generate growth from the aid that they receive. While the countries with bad institutions and lack of good legal frameworks and etc., they will simply not be able to generate growth from the money that is given to them. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, that seems un- understandable, but at the same time. Esther Lee also mentions that it's very hard to make the case uh, for international agents to intervene and to change the governance of a country of in a top to bottom uh, way, uh, yeah. so a country that is not their own.
1: Exactly, and precisely that's uh, that was uh, there were al- already some attempts by some international financial institutions to implement top-down measures on those countries, but they basically gave up because that's a sort of step on con- on other countries' sovereignty. Mm. And at the same time, however, the model of aid can't work without good institutions to implement it and profit from it. That's mm. the the issue here.
0: Yeah, I think that is really perhaps the main idea of the book, which is the current model of aid. It's not efficient, uh, and it's necessary to change it. And it's not efficient yeah. because there's the, a lot of things mediating it, like, for instance, governance of the countries, if it's good mm-hmm. or if it's bad. Um, I think Lee reinforces this idea by making it very clear in the quote that I really. Like, because I think it's very harsh on the reader, but makes us understand it very well. And I will quote it now if you allow me. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, the West spent $2.3 trillion on foreign aid over the last five decades and still had not managed to get 12 cent medicines to children to prevent half of all malaria deaths. The West spent 2.3 2.3 trillion dollars and still had not managed to get $4 bad nets to poor families. The West spent 2.3 trillion dollars and still had not managed to get $3 to each new mother to prevent five million child deaths.
1: Yeah, and this point is that to basically what, with what you just mentioned to to base add only on flows of money those trillions. Trillions of dollars that you mm-hmm. said it's just inefficient, and there are a lot of variables that get in the way between the checks for ad finance and the needy population, mm. as you were starting to mention bureaucracy, uh, corruption, uh, domestic governance quality. Mm, yeah, like in the case of Haiti, for
0: instance. Haiti was the country that got the most standbys from the the IMF over the last half century. It it got 22 standbys. What Uh this means is that the IMF actually refused to aid Haiti 22 times, given how dysfunctional the government is. Mm -hmm. For instance... Um, The Duliver family, which was in power from 1957 to 1986, got 20 out of those 22. And uh, this family was not only really bad at politics, it was actually also very bad at economics. To see Mm -hmm. this, just know that the income of the average people from Haiti was lower at the end of their rule, so at in 1986, then it was okay. in 1957.
1: Yeah, I meanwhile, uh, many other countries making like huge jumps in technology and mm-hmm. modernization. And everything. And I'm glad that you mentioned that case as well, Bruno, because Haiti was also the country that later on was severely destroyed in 2010 in the earthquake. Do you remember? Yeah, I remember that. And um, I guess we were adolescents when that happened, but I remember that there was a worldwide mobilization of resources to help Haiti at the time. And I actually think it was more than or around $10 billion from international institutions and governments around the world that were sent to help Haiti. Mm. And yet, many people still live in bad conditions and people who lost their homes in the earthquake actually never saw Ed arriving in their hands.
0: Yeah, so... The current persistence of conflict and corruption or just administrative inefficiency are all intermediate variables between the amount of aid given and the actual rate of growth of those countries.
1: Yeah, and actually, if we de-escalate from these huge effort and see smaller things, I mean, there are plenty of them that are success cases. From targeted things that were implemented that, that actually works um, in some countries, and um, I guess these small and targeted things, um, when they get the possibility to be recognized, they can be implemented at a larger scale. Mm-hmm. That has happened in some cases, but in others. Um, it didn't. Um, it's more common that they are um, not sufficiently recognized. And, I mean, one of the, the cases, like probably the most famous one, is the Melinda and um, Bill Gates Foundation, mm. which is ex- a very successful case, I say. And um, they have the financial means to, of course, and important team of advisors on the field on lots of experts to work with them and they basically pick where to start, assess what's the underlying environment um, of a set of a certain problem they want to try to fix in a certain region and they deal with it. And alongside with all this, this team and with a lot of persistence, they were already able to achieve very relevant targets Mm. like I don't know if you saw that this year, the, the announcement on how they eradicated, mm-hmm. uh, were able to eradicate polio in some African countries, yeah. which is an effect that the world has been debating with for so many decades.
0: Yeah, but there aren't many bills and melindas on earth. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's a fact (laughs) okay but um besides their case of philanthropy there is also another one that i have uh, very present in my mind and it was referred in easterly uh, book and uh, it's actually from someone he knew um, you probably uh, remember that example as well, Bruna. Um, I, think, um, I think I do. That man from Ghana, right? Exactly. It was um, a man named Patrick Hawan, um, who grew up in Ghana doing its military regimes. And basically, this man got a miraculous opportunity to study in the US once. He met a richer man who financed his studies. And he then went uh, after his studies to work for uh, Microsoft, he got quite rich and then he decided to get back to his own country and open a university. And that university actually gave many youngsters an opportunity A life-changing one at getting a faculty degree and even more uh, remarkable is the fact that um, it was part of the university policy to give to most of those kind of those students scholarships so Mm. because most of them couldn't study by their own means you know so it was very a a remarkable case of targeted small thing working on the ground Mm. that we wish could be escalated right
0: Yeah, I I remember that example too, because there's also this idea of a cyclic change. He was given an opportunity, and then because he's from that country and he knows the problems that uh, there exist, he also understands how the population thinks. So he went back and he implemented uh, another idea and now it's a cyclic change because he's giving opportunities to other young people. Uh, yeah. I, this also touches in a topic that I think it's one uh, that we necessarily need to address, which is the distinction between planners versus searchers that Esther oh, yeah. does, mm-hmm. which is basically mm-hmm. the planners focus on the top-down approaches to big problems. Their intentions are obviously good, but their mm-hmm. approach is not efficient. It's what we've been talking this entire time in this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. And they also have to deal with uh, the blurred lines of interventionism, whether they can mm-hmm. or not intervene, intervene in uh, foreign countries with their own sovereignty. They, they, when this approach that is proven to be ineffective fails... What they tend to do is to escalate the solution they have already in place, Um, be that with the escalation of the flow of money that is given to those countries and not necessarily in changing the approach that they already have in place. Uh, Meanwhile, to be a searcher is what you have also said and what Patrick shows us. That is focusing, <laughs> focusing on a small uh, problem um, in your community, in a well-known community, and homegrown solutions for problems that exist. So there's also another quote in the end of the book that I think summarizes mm-hmm. really well what to be a searcher is and how to help in the way we can, depending on the role that we have mm-hmm. in society. So I'll quote Go it again. Yeah. <laughs> If you are an activist, you can change your issue from raising more aid money to making sure that the aid money reaches the poor. If you are a researcher or student of development, you can search for ways to improve the aid system or for piecemeal innovations that make poor people better off or for ways for homegrown development to happen sooner rather than later. If you are an aid worker, you can forget about the utopian goals and draw upon what you do best to help the poor. I really like this quote.
1: Thank you. I I, I started laughing when you said uh, searchers because you were saying what you... You know, and I thought you were going to say that I am a searcher, and I was going to be very, very flattered.
0: <laughs> you are searching for answers for this, uh, for this problem and issues. So I think we can use <laughs>
1: <laughs> not yet a policymaker, but yeah, I find this yeah. topic so interesting. And I guess this was the best, uh, the best way with that quotation you just gave. Um, the, this was the best way to wrap this episode's topic. Mm and um of course besides william easterly's book uh, the white man's burden there is plenty of thought provoking literature on the topic of development policy that deserves our reading time i am sure um there are there is a, uh, also a very interesting literature um By the two of the winners of this year's um, Nobel uh, uh, Economics, I mean um, uh, Nobel Prize. um, You mean last year? Last year's, yeah, yeah, two thousand and nineteen. You're right, and that I also read, and I think it's very there. It's very interesting and suggests. So, um, thank you guys for joining us today, and we will see you hopefully on the next. I thought about it.